We're in Matthew 27. If you'd like to turn your Bibles there. This morning, we're still in that in-between place. The death of Jesus has occurred, but the resurrection has not quite yet happened. In fact, it's the day of Jesus' death as we begin our, our study this morning in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 57. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph took the body. He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Father, in this small section of Scripture, I believe, I believe, Lord, there is insight, there is a calling out that You have for us today. And so again, I pray that You would give us ears to hear and, and hearts to obey. I, I thought it interesting, Father, as Mike was praying, and the thought that you don't want to just get into our minds, you want to get into our hearts, that our hearts would receive you. And Father, we realize that's because our heart is the seat of sin. And our heart is the deceitful, deceptive place. And our hearts, Father, are what need to be healed. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enter and cleanse our hearts. And for those who are believers, who are disciples, outspoken in their faith and in the truth, Lord, that You would protect our hearts against deception. That we might know truth and see truth. And Father, for those who who haven't, again, haven't received that, that forgiveness that You offer, I pray a complete cleansing of the heart. That we all might walk with You and and enter into the, the freedom and the blessing of obedience, Lord. This morning, Father... Show us Your Word. In Jesus' name, Amen. I don't know how many of you watch 24. It's the fastest hour of TV on television. I'm telling you. It zips by. I could not believe last Monday night's episode. I couldn't believe... Now, if you are not a 24 fan, just bear with me for a moment. I must vent. Tony Almeida... (laughs) One of my favorite characters on the show, who, who's been absent a couple of seasons, they killed him off you know, a while ago. Well, they brought him back. And I was like, yeah, Tony! But in the meantime, you learn that Tony's done some dark deeds and been involved with some underhanded things in his bitterness and frust- you know, long, long history there. Well, they brought him back, and you're watching him through this season. And Tony, Tony's been kind of the dark horse. You know, you're wondering, is he going to come out okay? And what's going to happen with him? Oh! Did you see? Do you see it? Funny night? I was shocked. I had such high hopes for Tony. And if you have it, you know, T-Vote at home and you haven't watched it, uh, well, the secret's been let out. Tony's one of the bad guys. I know, you're all shocked and upset. And you came here this morning to talk about this. (laughs) Now, I know in 24, we still have a few weeks left to find out the opposite, so... Pray for Tony. Would you? That he would come out okay. 
I was thinking in light of the study this morning how, how many of us really enjoy cloak and dagger television or movies. We, we like shows involving secret agents and twisting plot, plot lines that we can't quite figure out until all of a sudden it happens. We love surprising characters, people whose true identity, their true focus or purpose is covert until the last second. And this morning's study involves a couple of players who were covert in their faith. They they were secret agents, as it were. We had no idea until the death of Jesus where they really stood. I was struck by this. Again, I I was going to go on and talk about the resurrection, but in reading over the verses, we stopped on Wednesday night at verse 56, and so as I picked up verse 57 earlier this week and started reading through, it struck me. I was fascinated by, by these two secret disciples who emerged at a time when the apostles were running scared. The twelve. The eleven, actually, once Judas had hanged himself. The eleven who were left, who had walked with Jesus, they had been trained with Jesus, apprenticed by Jesus. They were true disciples. And they fled like frightened children. They ran away. But in that moment, two people stood up. I want to talk to you specifically this morning if you are a secret disciple. Now we can all listen in and learn from this, but I specifically want to address you clandestine Christians and you know who you are. The rest of us may or may not know. You're the person who believes wholeheartedly in Jesus. You believe in His teachings. You even accept His divinity. But when it comes to your personal life, mum's the word. You're not talking about Him. You're not sharing because maybe for you, maybe you grew up believing that religion is a very personal thing. One of the lies of the devil, by the way. Maybe you grew up thinking that you should never really talk religion and politics because it just upsets people. I heard the greatest joke this week and I can't tell you. (laughs) I wish I could because it's perfect for this morning. But it's very one-sided politically and I, I don't... Okay, I'll tell it, but but I gotta say this: if you happen to be a Democrat, I mean, no offense. It's just a funny, you know, from the okay. And if you happen to be a Republican, please don't bash Democrats with this joke. Okay, all right, okay. (laughs) A priest was was dying. He had a week, maybe left to live, and they asked him if he had any final requests. And he said, you know, I would just love, if, if, if I could, I would like to talk to Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi. Could, could you get Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi and bring them to my bedside just so I can talk to them before I die? And they thought it was a strange request, and they thought it would be difficult, you know, because we're talking about some higher-ups in Washington. But they put in the request, and lo and behold, Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi both said, you know, that, that's probably a good thing to do. And so they show up at the, at the side of this priest's bed and he's holding Harry Reid's hand on one side and he's holding Nancy Pelosi's hand on the other side and, and he prays for them and, and, and they leave the room and one of his helpers just says to him, says, Sir, I just need to understand why you felt it was so important to have Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid at your bedside. And he said, Well, my whole life I have purposed to be like Jesus. And when he died, he was crucified between two thieves. (laughs) (laughs) 
okay. <laughs> Religion and politics. Be careful. <laughs> Maybe you're one of those people who, when it comes to your beliefs, you are convicted. You know what you believe. You have a relationship and a faith in the Father, but most people around you don't know what you believe. You're one of the ones that squirm a bit when Pastor Rick is talking about evangelism and getting out and speaking the name of Jesus. Maybe even among your friends, you're a nice guy. You're you're a sweet gal. You desire to do the right thing. You care for people. You show the love of Christ. But you pretty much keep your personal beliefs personal. Well, though there are those who believe that religion is a deeply personal thing, I'm not talking about religion this morning. In fact, I really don't give a whole lot of care for religion. I'm talking about your relationship with Jesus. And it's about this relationship that Jesus said in Matthew 10.27, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Now it was a sad silence in the late afternoon on the day that Jesus died. Can you just imagine where the apostles were at? where the city of Jerusalem was at, after the crucifixion, when the body of Jesus hung limp on the cross. I don't know, were there those, maybe among the women who were at the cross, and John, who we know was there, were there those who hoped all the way up to the last breath that He would come down off the cross and declare Himself to be Messiah in power and glory? There may have been, but in that last moment, His head dropped. The last breath came out. Some were there and they saw the spear thrust into the side. Blood and water came shooting out, indicating he was dead. But in that quiet afternoon, within hours, maybe even minutes of the death of Jesus, two secret disciples came out of hiding. Two men showed up when everybody else fled. Matthew only mentions one of these two men, so we're going to focus primarily on him this morning. But there were two. And at great personal peril, Joseph of Arimathea stood up. Joseph came out to claim the body of Jesus. Verse 57, again tells us when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea, named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. We haven't met Joseph before. In fact, up until these verses, no one had ever heard of him. Save family, friends, you know, people there in Judea. But certainly not in the church. If we were to stop before we get to these verses, we never would have known who this man was. His Hebrew name, or the name for the town he came from, Arimathea, is Ramah. Now, you Bible students, you've heard the name Ramah before. It means the heights, and it's where Samuel, the prophet, came from. It's where he was born, there in Ramah. This is the hometown of this man, Joseph. It's in the hill country of Ephraim, east of Joppa, about eight miles or so north of Jerusalem. That's where Joseph called home. Now, Joseph, being a wealthy man, didn't have a burial site in Ramah. His burial site was in Jerusalem, which would have taken a bit of money and a bit of wealth. And it would have been important for the devout Jew. It's significant that he's from Ramah because Isaiah prophesied that the burial site of Messiah, actually it's significant that his tomb was in Jerusalem, because that's what Isaiah said was going to happen. If we look in verse 60, we're told that he laid 
the body of Jesus, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. Joseph was a rich man from Arimathea. And Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, tells us his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a a rich man in his death. 700 years before this happened, the prophet said this would happen. Now, understand something. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, it seems out of order. It doesn't, doesn't read the way I would read it. In fact, the first time I read this prophecy, I thought, okay, I, I can see where we're going with this, but Lord, shouldn't it have said his grave was assigned with a rich man? Yet he was with wicked men in his death. Isn't that what it should have said? It's kind of the opposite. It says his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death. It sounds a little confusing. I'd I'd swap it. But this is a great example of the absolute precision of prophecy. Jesus' grave wasn't with the wicked, but it should have been. It should have been. When he was nailed to the cross, his grave was assigned with the wicked. For what they would do in crucifixion is they would take the body of a crucified criminal down and they would desecrate it. Typically, they would throw it in an open grave with the bodies of other criminals crucified that same day. They dumped dirt over it and it would remain unmarked and desecrated. Sometimes they would just toss it into a landfill. And that was the assignment of the body of Jesus. That's where it would have gone had Joseph of Arimathea not stood up. Truly, his grave was assigned with the wicked man, but he was with a rich man in his death. Mark chapter 15, verse 44 tells us that Pilate marveled that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph intervened. Actually, I believe it was divine intervention. This is one of those moments, again, you hear prophecy and then God does something magnificent to fulfill prophecy exactly as He said it would happen. He inspires Joseph. The Spirit got into Joseph's heart and Joseph of Arimathea stands up. Where was that tomb? The tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Well, that's a a subject of some controversy. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But here's another fact about Joseph that may surprise you. Not only do we find out from Matthew, very simply, he was a rich man from Arimathea, but we also find out, if we dig a little further, that Joseph was a Pharisee. More than that, he was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. He was a higher up among Jews. Luke chapter 23 verse 50 said, A man named Joseph who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. So when we read about the Sanhedrin going nuts and calling for his crucifixion, there were two men there who did not agree. Voices against the death of Jesus. Luke tells us a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And you want to know a great way to become overtly outspoken in your faith? Here's a way. I'm going to give you one clue here as to how to get out of that place of being kind of afraid to speak your faith. Out of that place where you're quiet and keeping it to yourself into the place where you can't help but talk about it, look forward to the kingdom of God. 
Joseph was looking forward to the kingdom. And when Jesus came, because Joseph was looking for the kingdom, he recognized the king. If in your faith you're not looking for the kingdom, why should you say a word? If you're not expecting the coming of Jesus, keep it to yourself. But if you expect Him to return, if you're looking for the kingdom, I'll tell you something, the more you look, the less you can keep your mouth shut. If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, it will keep your eyes from the things of man of which religion is the worst. This man was in the throes of religion, in the religious ruling class. A righteous, religious man. And yet, because he looked for the kingdom, he saw Jesus for who he was. Matthew 6.10 tells us, Your kingdom come. We just pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 6.33, Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. Because the focus of the Christian life is not what Jesus can do for me now. The focus of the Christian life is being ready for what Jesus is going to do then. Yes, Jesus will work in your life now. Yes, there will be manifest work done through and in and around you if you're a disciple and follower of Jesus. But that's not the focus. I've shared with you before, healing for today will still result in death. Unless Jesus come. So keep your eyes fixed on that return. Joseph was a man looking for the kingdom. So rather than going down in history as a rich Pharisee of the Jewish ruling class who called for the crucifixion of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea goes down in history as the one who went and asked for the body of Jesus. Why? Because not only was he a rich man from Arimathea, not only was he a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, number three, Joseph was a disciple. He was a disciple. Verse 57 tells us he was a disciple of Jesus. John chapter 19 verse 38 tells us Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus but a secret one for fear of the Jews. A clandestine Christian. Follower of Jesus yet but not outspoken until this point in his life. By the way, there was another secret disciple like Joseph who was a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling elite. You may remember him. His name is Nicodemus. We're told in John chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Remember the story? He came to Jesus at night under a cloak of darkness in secrecy to understand more who this Jesus was. Later in the Gospel of John, we find out that when the Jews were calling for the death of Jesus, Nicodemus stood up and said, Why do we want to go after this guy? Cut him some slack. And then we see Nicodemus joining Joseph and the two of them gathering John 19.39 says, Nicodemus, who had first come to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. Listen to this. You remember making paper mache eggs when you were in elementary school? I was so excited. It was around Easter time. It was back when you could call it Easter in the public school. And I was with my class, and we all made big Easter eggs out of paper mache. We took balloons, blew them up, egg-shaped balloons, and then we took, you know, the what was it, newsprint and that goo, dipped it in the goo and put it in, and I hated that because you could never get it off your fingers. Then you go out and play and you get dirt in your hands sticking. It's a whole thing. But we finished our eggs. And the idea was that once that paper mache had hardened, then you just took a pin and stuck it through and popped the balloon on the inside and it would hold the shell. So I stuck the pin in and my paper mache egg went... (laughs) 
one of my great childhood disappointments. I tell you that, whoa. <laughs> I think they're a little upset. I mean, they heard what I said about Leviticus. I tell you that because I want you to understand something here that I had not seen before. This was the practice of wrapping the body in aloe and myrrh. They took linen strips, dipped it in this aloe and myrrh mixture, and they laid it all over the body, and it worked like paper mache. It developed a cocoon, a hardened cocoon, over and around the body. That's what they did to Jesus. Now check this out. We're told in John chapter 20, verse 6, that Simon Peter came and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying. The word lying in John chapter 20, verse 6, is came I in the Greek, and it means outstretched. They saw the cloths outstretched. And the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded together in a place by itself. And then the other disciple, who came to the tomb first, went in also. He saw and believed. Now, a lot has been made about the linen napkin. A lot of focus about what that means. And that that's what John saw. And I preached that sermon, by the way. John saw the linen napkin folded up. He saw that and believed. It may have been something else, a little more dramatic, a little more stunning. John would have looked into the tomb. Peter looked into the tomb and saw the linen wrappings, not lying there, but outstretched in the shape of the body, but empty. That would have a stunning impact, wouldn't it? There's no body in there. There's the hardened, encrusted outline, the linen cloths, but it's hollow. Might that be the reason John looked in there and saw and believed? Interesting. Now, I I said I would come back to the location of Joseph's tomb, the tomb that Jesus borrowed for 72 hours. And at first it wasn't much of a thing of interest in the early church. In fact, we don't see it talked about really in Scripture. Oh, go meet at the tomb of Jesus. Or we all went to the tomb to pray together. Or Peter or Paul were preaching by the tomb. They didn't care for the tomb much because he wasn't in the tomb anymore. So once the deed was done, once Jesus was resurrected, it pretty much fell into the lapse of memory for the church. Until, until 325... They're Twitter-pated. That's the problem, the birds this morning. Until 325 A.D., under the rule of Constantine, when a group of tombs were uncovered inside the holy city. Constantine's mother, Helena, was on a religious relics tour, and she put her son's stamp of authenticity. She found places all over Jerusalem and said, this happened here and this happened here, which is amazing because Helena was not there when they happened. But wanting to developed this new religion of state, she began to place the mark of Constantine around. And one of those was in in this section of tombs. Today, that very section of tombs you can visit is called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I don't think that's the tomb. I've been in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Frankly, it's kind of a dark and scary place. I don't think that was the tomb of Jesus. There are some problems with it, prophetically and practically. And I just put this for you to consider. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 11, talking about the burnt offering, which was a picture of the crucifixion later on, said the following, He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. And Aaron's sons the priest shall sprinkle its blood around the altar. When the sacrifice was made, it was to be made north of the altar... After it was made, they would come back to the altar to sprinkle, then, the sacrifice on it. 
Because the burnt offering was a type of the real offering to come, I'm convinced the reason God decreed the slaying of the offering to be to the north of the altar is because that's where Jesus would be crucified, due north of the temple. Well, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is due west of the temple. Interestingly, Skull Hill, Golgotha, is north. Skull Hill, which we talked about last week, you can still see in Jerusalem today, and it is prominent and it is obvious. It looks like a skull. You might say, well, couldn't Jesus have been crucified on Skull Hill, then taken to the tomb where the Holy Sepulchre is today? No, and I'll tell you why. Matthew or Mark chapter 15, verse 20 says, After they had mocked Him, they took the purple robe off Him and put on His own garments, and listen, they led Him out to crucify Him. Now that verse by itself might not say much, but add to it Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11, and listen. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the, by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. So the Bible tells us that the tomb of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the death of Jesus, was not inside, but was on the outside. It's where it occurred. The Holy Sepulchre is and was located on the inside of the gates, not on the outside. Skull Hill is on the outside, north, due north of the Damascus Gate. Now there's, there's more proof here. This, among other things, led a number of people in the mid-1800s, the most famous of which was General Charles Gordon, to question the authenticity of Constantine's claim about where the tomb was at the site now of the Holy Sepulchre. So where was the actual tomb? Here's the most intriguing clue, and it comes from Scripture. John chapter 19, verse 41. Listen closely. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Church of the Holy Sepulchre was too far away. And furthermore, the Bible tells us that where Jesus was crucified, there at Golgotha, there was a garden. And in that garden was the new tomb. Hewn out of the same rock of Skull Hill. Somewhere right there around Skull Hill is where the burial site of Jesus truly was. And in 1867, a tomb was discovered in a garden area. On the western escarpment of Skull Hill itself, a tomb General Charles Gordon was absolutely convinced to be the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Now, if you're interested and you want to do a little more study on that, we can't say absolutely for sure. But if you want to study that more, I encourage you to pick up a book called The Weekend That Changed the World. Jot that down. The Weekend That Changed the World by Peter Walker. Excellent treatment of the whole situation of the garden tomb versus the Church of Holy Sepulchre and where it was that Jesus might possibly have been laid in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. We know it's north of the city gates. We know it was outside the city. We know it was in a garden and we know it was on the western side of the very hill that Jesus was crucified on. And all of those things, plus a whole lot more I won't go into, point to the area called the garden tomb today. And if you come with us to Israel in a year, we'll visit the garden tomb. We'll go there and we'll see it. But Joseph offered up his tomb. It's a wonderful place to go. I, I mentioned last week, I don't know if I, if I said it this hour or second hour, but uh, 
Mike Hoffman, was, who flies for Delta, was in Israel on Easter Sunday and shot me that email just saying, you know, I'm heading down to the tomb. I'll let you know what I find out. <laughs> so he was actually able to be there. It's a beautiful site, the garden tomb. It's a wonderful place for devotion. But the bottom line is wherever the tomb of Jesus is, it sits empty. He's not there, for He has risen. Now, as we've seen, the discipleship of Joe and Nick up to this point was clandestine. Secret disciples. And because of this, a lot of commentators and scholars and even pastors will criticize them for keeping their faith to themselves. Why didn't they stand up during Jesus' ministry? Why didn't they speak out and stop all this? But I've got to ask, why didn't Peter? Where was John at this time? You know, where were the rest of the apostles? All the rabbis' men, these well-trained students of the Savior, were in hiding. It was Joseph and Nicodemus who stuck their necks out to honor the body of Jesus in His burial. It was these two men who evidenced faith for the first time. You know the old phrase, when the going gets tough, the tough gets going. I think we could alter that a bit. When the going gets tough, the faithful show up. When it gets hard... That's when your faith begins to be seen for what it really is. That's when you know that you really believe. When it gets hard to believe. Going back again, verse 58 says, This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own noon tomb. Interesting, Mark 15, verse 43 says, He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. What does he need courage for? It's just a dead body, right? Wrong. The dead body of Jesus, the Messiah, who the crowd screamed hours earlier for his crucifixion. The dead body of a supposed criminal. What did... Nicodemus and Joseph, what do these two men need courage for? Gang, while the apostles hid, these two men put themselves on the line. They risked reputation. A follower of Jesus will do that. Risk reputation. As both Pharisees and members of the Sanhedrin, both these men could immediately have lost position and been cast out. Probably were. I don't know, we don't have a history on that. But it's unlikely they were allowed back in the Sanhedrin after tending to the body of Jesus in the way that they would. What is reputation, after all, to a disciple of the Lord? Paul said in Galatians 1.10, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul also wrote in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, We speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines hearts. Let me remind you, if reputation is what's keeping you silent, a disciple has no concern for that. A disciple of Jesus is only concerned with Jesus. They risk reputation. They risk retribution. To be seen siding with Jesus at this point could have been deadly. Remember, Peter had denied three times. I don't even know him. Because if he had said, yes, I'm with him, he could have ended up on a cross. And so quickly to do the same thing, these guys risked retribution, but obviously they were not very concerned about it. Matthew 5.11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Joe and Nick 
They risked reputation. They risked retribution. Oh, and one more thing. They risked religious defilement. Numbers chapter 19, verse 11 says, The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. You know what day it was? It was at the day of preparation. It was the day of unleavened bread. They were getting ready now for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which would go seven days following the Passover, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as Mike shared this morning, to get the leaven out. It was all about sinlessness and holiness and cleanliness before the Lord. And to touch the body of Jesus, when these two men touched the body of Jesus, as they would have had to, to wrap Him and prepare it for burial, would have made them instantaneously unclean and unable to join in. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, big deal, Rick. It's just one feast. It is if you're a Jewish person. It is a big deal. It's huge. Not to mention the fact that touching a dead body at this season, at Passover, was even seen as worse. They would have been unable to practice religion that night. I think that's great. For to touch the body of Jesus should make you unable to practice religion. To connect yourself to the body of Christ. Once you have died to self in the way that Jesus died, you're dying to religion. You're dying to things that bind. You are living now to freedom. That's what Jesus is about. Secret disciples love religion because it's a safe, comfy place that they can show up once or twice a week. They can pay their dues. They can do their thing and go home open disciples. They often forget all about religion to the point that they offend the religious from time to time because they care more about Jesus than about keeping the rules. Not that the rules won't be kept, but the deeper in love with Jesus you are, the more you're going to keep His commandments just because you love Him. Think about this, gang. In the hours leading up to the death of Jesus... All manner of hateful and brutish and evil hands were laid on the body of our Lord. Back in Matthew 26, verse 67. Matthew 26, 67 tells us, They spat in His face. They beat Him with their fists. And others slapped Him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And these were the religious people. We're told over in Matthew 27, and verse 27, that the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him, stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together the crown of thorns, they placed it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they knelt down before him and mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took a reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And that was how Jesus' body was handled leading up to the crucifixion. Compare that with, these, with this touching verse in verse 59 of chapter 27. Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. John 19 verse 40 says, They took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. What are you saying, Rick? Just this. The only hands to touch the body of Jesus after His death belong to those who loved Him. Great contrast. Fists beating Him before His death. Hands of Joseph and Nicodemus wrapping Him lovingly after His death. 
and saying that after Jesus' death, his body was handled with care. How do you handle the body of Jesus? How do you care for the body of Christ? Like Joseph and Nicodemus, getting the secret disciple out of me has everything to do with how I handle the body of Jesus. I'm going to give you three quick questions to consider this morning and we'll be done. First off, do you claim the body of Jesus? Do you claim the body of Jesus? Joseph did. He had no problem going in. He needed a little courage, mustered it up, but he went in and claimed the body of Christ. Some don't. Some reject the body of Christ. Some go it on their own. Some say, I don't need other Christians to walk with Christ. Listen, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.27, Now you are Christ's body. And individually members of it. And so the question is, what can we learn from Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea about how we handle the body? Do we claim it? I don't need church. I don't need other Christians. I can have a relationship with Jesus, just me and Him, and I can do just fine. And if you believe that, if you ever believe that, you're sadly mistaken. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. It's a powerful verse, but verse 21 is what I really want you to hear. He says in verse 20, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory, listen, in the church. And in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Paul says the glory of God is manifest in the church. Not some religious institution, but believers in Jesus, fellow disciples standing together for the Lord in this world. I love the church. I love the church. We got a lot of moles and freckles on this body, we got weaknesses. And we got failures over the years. But the church is the mechanism through which God determined to spread the message of love and grace and forgiveness in a tangible way to this dying world. It was the church that came up with the concept of public education and hospitals and care for the sick and the dying. That came out of faith, gang. Do you claim the body? Do you claim the body of Jesus? Are you one who's willing to stand up and say, despite all our faults, the Holy Spirit is here and He is working in and through us. And I love the church. Second question, not only do you claim the body of Jesus, do you carry the body of Jesus? Do you carry the body of Jesus? Do you literally carry the dying of Jesus with you wherever you go? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1. And we are honing in on the single greatest key to getting the disciple out of me. To laying aside the secret for the open. To shouting the truth from the rooftop. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, Paul's writing, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What does that say? It says your faith is an open book. It says walking with Jesus is an open declaration. It is not a secret and hidden thing. And even if our gospel is veiled, 
It is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul says, and this is great, we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach ourselves. We do not preach the Bridge Christian Fellowship. I do not preach Pastor Rick. We don't preach the leadership here. We don't preach ourselves. It's not about how we look in the world. No, we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure, this glory, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Oh, we're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Watch this. Always carrying around in the body the dying of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now if we stop right there, we can spiritualize what Paul said and go, isn't that nice? This sense of, I carry around the dying of Jesus in my body every day. It's a spiritual thing. No, it's not. Paul is describing an actual and very tangible thing. Do you carry around the body of Jesus? Well, how do I do that? Look at verse 12. So death works in us, but life in you. What do you mean, Paul? I mean that we are walking the footsteps of Jesus right to the cross, straight to His death, because even by my death, if it means the life of somebody else, I will do it for Jesus' sake. If it means my dying, and that dying may not be a physical death, it may be humility. It might be embarrassment. It might be giving up the pride that holds back my mouth from opening and declaring Jesus. But the reality is, Paul said, well, I asked the question, do you claim the body of Jesus? Do you carry the body of Jesus? Number three, do you care? Do you care for the body of Jesus? We were praying at worship team on Thursday night and Barb made a statement and I wrote it down as soon as I got home. She said, when my care for the heart of a brother or sister outweighs the care I have for my own heart, glory is revealed. Let me read that again. When my care for the heart of a brother or sister outweighs the care I have for my own heart, that's when the glory is revealed. That is carrying around the dying of Jesus because when Jesus died, He died caring for you more than for Himself. More than concern over His own heart was His concern for your heart and mine. And that's what we're invited into as disciples of Jesus. To show up and care more for His body than we care for ourselves. Like Joseph and Nicodemus, the amount of love I have for Christ Jesus is seen in how I care for His body. Jesus said in John 13, 34, the new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Joseph, Nicodemus, Rick, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Jesus said, it's a new command I'm giving you to love one another. Well, it's not a new command. It's not a new command. Israel was commanded to love their neighbors themselves throughout the Ten Commandments. In the old law, it had been pronounced before, love each other. But there's a caveat that made it new. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And that's what made it new. Because now the command of Christ is not just show, you know, a mental assent to love. But love the way I loved you first. Even before the resurrection. The death, burial, situation of Jesus, it represents this ultimate act of self-sacrifice. That's how Jesus invites us to love His body. And we see this in Joseph. We see this in Nicodemus. They claim Jesus' body. Do it. Claim His body. Though it may risk you your reputation, it may bring on retribution, and it may cause religious defilement. Praise God. I've been defiled religiously, but saved relationally. Claim Jesus' body, the church. Carry Jesus' body. Daily considering the self-sacrifice of Christ, even as we constantly sacrifice our own desires that the life of Christ might be at work in other people's lives. Care for Jesus' body. Even, he said, as I have loved you. I believe that's how we begin to get the secret disciple out in the open, the place to which God is calling us. And Father, this is my prayer for your body this morning, that you would call us out into the open. That our voices would be stronger in faith. And that our hearts would be beating with the desire to serve You in every aspect of our lives. Whatever we do, truly, Father, our our work, our, our business, doesn't matter what that is. What matters is how we're walking. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that You would go with us. That Your Spirit would empower us with boldness, to not be secret disciples any longer, but disciples who show up even if everybody else is afraid. Empower us by Your Spirit to do just that. We pray in Jesus' name.